Hey, Podium listeners, we hear you like the Olympics, but do you like technology? Because you can listen to The Vergecast, which is another podcast from Vox Media about technology. With me, Neil Patel, Paul Miller. Hello. Dieter Bone. I'm I'm the one who decides who gets to stand at the top of the tech podium. Ooh. Who, has the, the, who has to sit on the bronze. I'm level. the one that gives the people on the podiums the stuffed animals instead of flowers. And I'm the one who ends this horrible ad. <laughs> Listen to The Vergecast. It's in the podcast app you're listening to right now. It is a fun podcast about technology. Thank you for enduring this moment with us. Amazing recovery on one from NBC Sports and Vox Media, this is The Podium. So let's get into the head of Sean White. The shipper of the United States. Lindsey Vaughn, this is her chance now. And I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi. Welcome to day 11 of the 2018 Olympic Winter Games. On today's episode, the parallels between diet and performance, why athletes eat what they eat, plus a program designed to maximize Olympians' training time. But first, here's Tom Ferry with the headlines. Today in Pyeongchang, Team USA's Britta Sigourney took the bronze in the women's ski halfpipe. Her teammate Maddie Bowman had hoped to defend her halfpipe gold medal from Sochi, but Bowman fell in all three of her runs in the final. And in ice dancing, Maya and Alex Shibutani took the bronze after the free dance program. Canadian pair Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer took home the gold. The figure skating events continue later this week with a women's event. The men have already wrapped up their events, but one skater continues to make headlines. Coming into Pyeongchang, Adam Rapon wasn't an individual medal favorite, but he's become one of the biggest stars of the 2018 Winter Games. My co-host Lauren Shahadi talked to Rapon earlier this week. Adam, Time Magazine Online called you the winner of the Winter Olympics. All the sports, <laughs> all the events, you. What do you say to that? You know, I feel like a winner, baby. <laughs> um, I feel like they say that the winner of the Olympics, their life changes forever. But I feel like from this whole experience, my life is going to change forever. I'm so lucky I've had this chance to go out there and show the world what I'm made of as an athlete, but at the same time do it with a sense of humor and really try to be as authentic to myself as possible. And I'm not afraid to, you know, call myself out and say, you know, in the individual event, I know I'm not the best one in the competition. And I'm, you know, not afraid to say that I'm, I'm nervous. I'm not afraid to just be human. I think sometimes you come to the Olympic Games and so many people think that Olympians are not humans. And then all of a sudden I got here and was like, what the hell? Like everybody's just a mess, just like me. The Olympic Games gives you such an amazing platform to speak up for things that you think are important to you and for you to share your story and that's always been so important to me is to share my story because I remember being just a young gay kid from the middle of nowhere and not feeling like it was okay and not feeling comfortable with who I was 
And I always thought that if I had the chance that I would share my story for another young kid out there who might be going through the same thing, whether they were gay or whether they just felt different. I really want to show that, yeah, it's okay to be different, but more than that, it's awesome. It's so liberating. It's so cool to just go out there and be yourself. And yeah, it's just been incredible. And fans, Adam, they gravitate towards you for that reason. Can you give me a moment or a tweet or something that your fans have said or done or shared with you that's inspired you? You know, I've heard from a lot of celebrities, which has been absolutely crazy. But I think what's really touched me the most is a lot of young kids coming up to me and sharing their coming out stories or where they felt like they needed strength. They went back and they listened to interviews I would do and they were like, you were just so yourself and you just didn't care. And it gave me confidence to, you know, go and achieve something I wanted to achieve I think the one thing I wasn't expecting was for people to really listen. And I think I've always, you know, just spoken from my heart and I've been really honest. Sometimes people don't expect honesty. (laughs) And I jokingly was like, oh, I'm America's sweetheart. But in some weird and twisted way, I'm redefining what America's sweetheart means it's 2018 and there's no reason why a 28 year old almost 30 year old figure skater who's happens to be gay from the northeastern pennsylvania can't be america's sweetheart i love it you and gus kenworthy have shared a special bond in this olympic games tell me about that relationship and and what you hope for the world to know about you and him well When we were getting ready, I was getting a lot of attention because it was like, oh, Adam Rippon's the first openly gay winter athlete. And, uh, you know, that's based literally on how we qualified. And, you know, our qualifiers are in the beginning of January and Gus qualified in the end of January. So we were getting a lot of attention for that. And so we started kind of connecting and uh, keeping in touch with each other throughout our like qualification processes. And as soon as we found out we were coming to the Olympics together, we were like, okay, we've got to meet up. And I have kept up with Gus's story over the last few years and um, told him, I was like, you know, I'm so inspired by what you've done. And I think you're so cool. And like, I really like, I can't wait to meet you. And so it ended up working out that we were going to meet up at the opening ceremony. So we were like looking around for each other, trying to find each other. And finally we did. And it was like I had just seen a friend that I hadn't seen in like a really long time. He came to two of my events and to one of them he came with his boyfriend and his whole entire family, which is just, I mean, it's just so nice. And he's competing today while I've been doing all this media. And um, I think I've been bothering everybody to make sure that I can get to a TV and make sure that he's doing all right and watching and seeing what's going on. So my heart is at the mountain today for sure. I think why Gus and I get along so well is we both really know what that's like to compete and have so many people watch what you're doing. And then on top of that, you just feel so insecure and so weird on the inside and you just share with everybody what you think is just going to make everybody not like you anymore, which for I think us was, you know, being gay. I felt like I was going to get a lot of pushback. I can only imagine what Gus felt like being in an X game sport. 
And, um, you know, being fully embraced by the LGBT community is just so amazing. And it's so awesome that we can be here at the Olympics and represent that community. And even more than that, just show the world that it doesn't it has nothing to do with being like a kick ass athlete it has nothing to do with it. I'm an Olympian that just happens to be gay. I'm not a gay Olympian. And what I want to come away from this games is that my personality and me being out there and, you know, really showing who I am. It's not like, oh, Adam's so fun and he's just you know, he's just gay and like enjoying it. Like that's part of who I am. And I and I love that part of me. But like, don't try to put that in a box. That is a personality for everybody. I'm somebody for everybody. You mentioned insecurity, Adam. You don't look like you're insecure. You don't sound like you're insecure. Is that just the insecurity of an athlete? I would say that I'm not insecure now. I definitely was insecure in the past. I definitely didn't trust myself. And I think I was really afraid to show that I wasn't perfect as an athlete. But that translated into like my personal life and to who I was off of the ice. And I think like when you think of like the perfect person or like whatever, I always envisioned that typical all-American boy who has the girlfriend and plays football. And, you know, while that's one person's version of the all-American boy, I think what I've really realized through this whole process is that I'm also that all-American boy, and I think that I'm realizing, and what I really want to show is that you can really redefine what that is. Adam, I'm such a fan. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so for much. joining us on the podium. Appreciate it. Thank you. Before we record an interview, we always do a sound check to make sure we're getting the right volume levels from our guest. And for our level check, the convention is to ask our guests one simple low-stakes question. What did you have for breakfast? Yeah, so definitely had my coffee. First thing in the morning, I have coffee. I think coffee is a, um, a very natural, uh, high in antioxidant form of energy. Typically, Except people need with to Alicia Kendig, what did you have for breakfast is not a low-stakes question. Breakfast and lunch... Dinner and all the snacks in between are what Alicia is all about. I had some Greek yogurt and some granola and some fresh berries on there. So that's uh, typically how I start my day. Most of the athletes we've met here in Pyeongchang spend their days on the slopes, in the rink, or at the gym. What they eat can have a big effect on their performance. My diet, just a general rule, I try to stick to eating foods that grow from the earth. Um, try to stay away from processed foods. This is J.R. Selsky, short track speed skater and three-time medalist in the Winter Olympics. That finely calibrated approach to food is driven by the same discipline that he brings to his training. I eat a lot of fruits, vegetables, you know, my protein, carb intake, um, making sure I'm conscious of that and, and recovery after training. I don't eat out a lot. I don't eat like to eat a lot of fast food and, and foods that will um, just naturally increase inflammation in the body. Protein, carbohydrates, inflammation. There's a lot to think about for elite athletes who push their bodies to the limit. That's the sole focus of Alicia Kendig, the sport dietitian at the U.S. Olympic Committee. Her message, it's simple. Food is fuel. 
It's a message she's taken to the almost 200 athletes she's worked with since she started back in 2011. When I first started at the Olympic Committee, um, I was assigned to women's hockey. Kendig worked with the U.S. women's ice hockey team for three years, leading up to the Sochi Winter Games. The team had never had a dietitian specifically assigned to them before. They hadn't won gold since the 1998 Olympics. And this was an attempt to strengthen every element of their training and performance, starting with their diet. My first day, I remember, was in Blaine, Minnesota. It's a harsh reality for the women's hockey team. They typically show up for uh, a big training camp the day after Christmas, so December 26th. Kendig's first task, as she recalls, was to sit on the sidelines and just watch. I saw, you know, how long their training sessions go. I stood out next to the ice and, and felt, you know, how warm is the ambient temperature? How cold is the ambient temperature? And then what was their fueling and hydration tendencies given some of those changes in environmental factors? Kendig was trying to understand the physical demands on this team to figure out what fuel they needed to excel. The demands were high, three periods of high intensity activity, and then one more period of grueling overtime. Despite the fact that the team played on the ice and in the cold, dehydration was a problem. So she started a process of nutritional reprogramming. The focus was on what they would drink. They had cartons of ready-to-drink protein shakes, and they, they, just, they would give them the shake, and then they told them they had to drink it. And so the athletes were like drinking these shakes in the shower after games, and they hated them. And in what they would eat. They were scared of carbohydrates. Um, they were scared of some of the things that they had heard about carbohydrates. So, you know, it, it was um, kind of educating them on not all carbs are bad. There are better sources of carbohydrates. She steered the players in the direction of natural sources of sugar, fruit, and a whole lot of vegetables. And it seems like it's something so simple, but, you know, I, I definitely feel like when we started, we had, you know, kind of iceberg lettuce or romaine lettuce in our salads. And then by the time we were, you know, getting really close to the Olympics, I mean, we had kale salads, we had, you know, a lot of roasted vegetables. And Kendig also focused on something she calls recovery nutrition, foods to refuel the body and help muscles recover faster after high intensity exercise. What, you know, the literature, the science shows is that if you if you consume food within that 30 to 60 minutes, it can really cut down on the amount of inflammation that an athlete might have after high intensity activity. It can also decrease the amount of soreness. Um, and there's a stored form of energy in, in the muscle and in the liver uh, called glycogen that that recovery nutrition will, it will replenish those glycogen stores much more quickly and efficiently if consumed within that 60 minute time. Sometimes Candig worked even faster than that, handing out chocolate milk to the players the minute they got off the ice. The emphasis on nutrition, Kendig says, was a game changer. That was really my focus in the last year was having the athletes feel like they were in a, in a condition to compete at their best. And they felt confident just in, you know, the bodies that they had showing up on the first day of, of a game at the Olympic Games. And so, um, you know, I, I think that their understanding of how to fuel, how to recover, the types of foods that they needed to eat on a daily basis helped them um, with that ease of, of management of body composition. And Kendig says at the end of her time with them, they were training and eating as a tightly knit team. This morning, the U.S. women's hockey team made an appearance at Rockefeller Center for the Today Show. A lot of excitement 100 days out. Hillary Knight. A silver in Sochi was what the team brought home four years ago after losing in overtime to their age-old rivals Canada. This year, Hillary Knight, Team USA's forward, says there's a laser focus on doing something that hasn't been done in 20 years. 
We're working our butts off every single day in order to try and make the national team represent our country, but then furthermore put our country in the best position to bring home a gold medal. The best position means leveraging all elements of their training, including the emphasis on diet and nutrition, which Alicia Kendig started them on years ago. The U.S. delegation to Pyeongchang is the largest Winter Olympic team for any nation in history. Alicia Kendig and her team have to feed them all. Something that a lot of people don't realize outside the Olympic movement is that our planning as an Olympic committee starts seven years prior to the Games when the, when the host city is named. And then, six months before the Games, the dietitians and food service teams prepare what Kendig calls a packout. And the packout includes um, loading up pallets that are often shipped by boat, just because it's the cheapest. Um, and when we're, when we're sending those things, it's a lot of the shelf-stable items. Which means granola bars and cereals. Gels, protein powders and shakes. The, the, the ingredients that we need to, to mix into, you know, uh, everyday food items that we'd be able to find on the ground in a foreign country. There's one particular item, though, that's not often found in foreign countries and which Kendig says athletes go wild for. Frozen peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. The U.S. Olympic Committee has shipped almost 7,000 of them to Pyeongchang. Kendig says they check off a couple of boxes. They're easy to hand out to large groups of athletes. They have both carbs and protein. And PB&Js are kind of an American thing. Americans are really the only country that really likes peanut butter. Um, you know, the, especially if you talk to like an Australian, for example, they're like, why would you mash up peanuts and eat them on a sandwich? Um, so it is something that our athletes really do appreciate. And while peanuts on bread are hardly a novelty in the States, the notion of food solely for fuel isn't as commonplace as it should be. As a culture, we like to enjoy our food. But for athletes at the top of their game, proper nutrition is just one of the things that could give them an edge. Training for the Olympics is a full-time job. Being a high school student preparing for college, that's a full-time commitment as well. So how to do both while still finding time to sleep and develop the social bonds that are important to teens? An innovative high school in Park City, Utah, has created a compelling model that seeks to answer that question, a model that's worked for 10 members of the U.S. Olympic team here in Pyeongchang. We're a sports academy that doesn't do sports. Tess Minor Farah is principal of the Winter Sports School, which challenges traditional ideas about how to educate promising young athletes. Students pursue their athletic careers through the Park City sports programs, while the Winter Sports School simply provides their schooling. The founders of the Winter Sports School sought to test out a different kind of model. They believed, and we still believe, that the best way to balance the intense demands of both high-level athletic and academic pursuits is, in fact, to avoid asking them to balance at all. That means no classes at all during the winter. From December to April, for the athletes, it's all about competition and training. They operate much like professional athletes during that time. Then come spring and continuing through the summer and into the fall, it's all about school with maybe some dry land training mixed in. The focus of the facility is just education, college prep, academics. Dave Kaufman teaches at the Winter Sports School. 
He's a former Silicon Valley finance executive who moved his family from California to join the faculty. The school has, I, I think, you know, tried to be careful not to, you know, claim undue credit for the athletic successes that our students go on to achieve or enjoy because, you know, we, we truly, we educate them and we educate them in an infrastructure that gives them the time to pursue their athletic passions. Pursue and excel, sometimes at world-class level, even before they graduate. Alumni include skiers Ted Ligeti and Andrew Weibrecht and ski jumper Sarah Hendrickson, each of whom competed here in Pyeongchang for their U.S. teams. You take someone like Sarah Hendrickson, who, uh, you know, started with us in the 11th grade and then in the winter between 11th and 12th grade, which, again, sounds funny, but given the way we run our academic calendar, that's, that's, that's how it ran for her. Well, that was the inaugural World Cup season for women's ski jumping, and she won the overall title and then came back to do her senior year with us. <laughs> Perhaps the coolest thing about the winter sports school, it costs nothing. Becoming a public charter school really opened doors uh, for us as a school, but also uh, for so many more students who wouldn't have been able to uh, make that commitment um, at a tuition-driven school. The Winter Sports School aims to help students commit to dreams beyond their Olympic dream. That means getting an education that allows them to compete in other realms. Everybody, I'm sure, is relatively familiar with the statistics of, well, you know, if you're, if you're starting high school football, for example, and you've got your eye on the NFL, what are the odds truly that you're going to make it? And now consider, for example, the United States ski team and how many teams there are. There's just one. <laughs> so uh, as daunting as the odds might be in football or basketball or baseball or whatever, um, you know, it, it can be even more daunting in the winter athletic disciplines. And so it's, it's really important. I mean, you got to chase your dreams and, and you've got to uh, give it your absolute best once you've decided to commit to it. But you also need to be prepared to have an academic and then a professional life outside of athletics. That ideal of the student athlete has been pursued for more than a century, ever since school sports were introduced in the U.S. Now we just have a new way of making that happen. Tim Struby here with a little preview of a story we're working on. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be an Olympic judge? Well, you can find out when we sit down with Steele Spence, Olympic slope-style judge, later this week. That's our show for today. Tonight in primetime on NBC, it's the premier event of the women's alpine skiing program, the downhill. And another highlighted Olympic program gets underway with the ladies' short program. Several women from the Olympic athletes from Russia team are favored for medals, while 20-year-old Brady Tinell looks to carry the momentum from her win at the 2018 National Championships. Our show producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger. Our executive producer is Nishat Kerwa. Find more episodes of The Podium on Apple Podcasts. You can watch the Winter Olympics on the networks of NBC. And you can stream every event live on NBCOlympics.com and the NBC Sports app. I'm Tim Struby. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.